If you were to just go along and ask the average person in the street, who do you think Jesus is? I reckon you'd get a plethora of answers. You get all sorts of answers from all sorts of different worldviews and backgrounds. People have got their own view of who they think Jesus is and, and what He's done. But I don't think in my time that I've been chatting to people about who Jesus is, that I've ever come across someone who is violently opposed to Jesus. For most people, the idea of Jesus raises this kind of lukewarm ambivalence. This idea that says, you know, he's a myth maybe. You know, I don't really know, it's probably a myth. Or he was a good teacher, or maybe a moral leader. But it's not often that I come across people who say, I hate Jesus. I hate Jesus. Not for Jesus' own sake. Now, there's plenty of people who've been hurt by people who call themselves Christians or by the church in, in some way that, that's caused them great pain. And so they're, they're kind of reacting against the church or what someone has done or some experience in their life. But rarely do they say, I hate Jesus. What God's Word shows us tonight, though, is that if we take Jesus at His Word, if we see Him for who He really is, there are only two possible reactions to the historical Jesus, the one who really walked this earth. You either violently hate Him, or you love Him more than any other. There's no middle ground. History leaves us no space for this lukewarm ambivalence, for this view that says, I'd like to think of Him as, or He's kind of a nice guy. It doesn't let us do that at all. And my hope is that tonight, as we look at this passage more, Jesus will read each of us of any lukewarm ambivalence we have. And He will captivate us by who He is and what He's come to do. So when you look with me, at chapter 12, verse 49, and hear these strong words of Jesus. Luke 12, 49. I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. Pretty strong words, aren't they? Most people, when they think of Jesus, think of Him as this, this one who's come to bring peace, this kind of warm, fluffy, nice guy, a good teacher. But here, you, you kind of hear Him saying He's come to bring fire. What is this fire that He's talking about? Now, some people kind of hear this and say He's talking about when God the Spirit would come. Because He comes on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, we see, uh, bringing a fire. God's, God's Spirit comes and dwells among people. But I don't think... That's what he's talking about at all. In fact, I'm sure he's not at this point. See, if we go back to the start of, of Luke, when John the Baptist introduces Jesus to the world scene, John the Baptist says something about this fire, and he's very clear. Look with me at um, Luke 3, verse 16. John says, I baptize you with water, speaking of Jesus, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And you're like, hang on, Rowan, that's talking about the Holy Spirit here, right? This isn't helping your case. But look at the next verse. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, His winnowing shovel in His hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into His barn. But the chaff, He will burn up with a fire that never goes out. What that means is that on the last day, the great judge of the earth will come like a farmer with a, a winnowing shovel. Now, the winnowing shovel was a shovel that kind of you put into the, the, the harvest that had been collected and you separate the wheat that you want to keep from the chaff or the junk you don't want to keep and gets burnt and thrown off. And this shovel kind of separated the two, the things that would last, the wheat, for the things that weren't valuable and were to be, to be thrown away. 
this picture of coming fire is not a picture of God the Spirit coming, although He will come. But here, it's a picture of judgment. And that's definitely how the Old Testament pictures the coming of God's promised King. Let's flick back with me to Isaiah 66. It's on the screen, but Isaiah 66, verse 15. And listen to what God says through Isaiah. Look, the Lord will come with fire. His chariots are like the whirlwind to execute His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. What we're being faced with here is the the true and right judgment of God. It's not just some Old Testament idea either. Paul talks about it in 2 Thessalonians. Look with me. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. He says this, This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with His powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength. It's not a light-hearted word that Jesus comes with. What we see here is that the cost of ignoring or rejecting the true and living God in the person of Jesus, it's catastrophic. If we take Him as He is, if we we recognize the Jesus that we meet on the pages of Scripture to be the Jesus that actually walked this earth, we just cannot be ambivalent towards Him. He comes to bring fire. Now, fire is something here that divides things that last from things that don't. Say it again. Fire is something that divides things that last from things that don't. Now, Sarah and I, we we have four kids. Uh, We love our kids, they're great. Uh, One of the things that you notice with kids and with adults is that when we wear our clothes, they get dirty, particularly with kids because they cover themselves in mud often. You kind of come in and you're like, no, this is not like some beauty parlor. You actually need to kind of be clean in what you wear. And so you kind of need to wash clothes and look after that. It was a phenomenon that I've recently experienced with Sarah being in hospital, me going, oh, I've actually got to do washing. I'm like, we've actually got to do something here. It's important to do. It was a great opportunity to be able to um, serve Sarah more now and go, I can do this, this is all right, it was great. Uh, but our clothes, they get dirty, they need cleaning. Especially mine, guys stink, it's kind of what we do. We're good at stinking. Um, we need to clean our clothes, but we don't cleanse our clothes with fire, right? <laughs> I don't know if it's something you're considering, because clothes don't last, Right, fire will just burn them up. They'll just be kind of a, a pile of ashes on the ground. You can't cleanse things that don't last with fire because they burn up. But for things that do last, things like gold and precious metal, things that last hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, they are cleansed by fire. Fire burns out the impurities amongst them and things that are lasting, that will endure, last Fire here distinguishes between things that last and things that don't. Fire divides. God's judgment will divide. The Bible keeps talking about fire coming on the earth to cleanse everything. Why is God sending this fire? Why is He so angry? You kind of sit here and you're like, what, is He just some angry dude in the sky and wants to like roar down fire on us? No. God's judgment is coming because God is just. The earth that we live in is full of, of evil. Uh, it's full of, 
of misery and decay and wickedness and oppression. The, the earth as we, as we live in it is not as it's supposed to be. How many of you made sure that you locked your house when you left tonight? Hand up. Okay, that's a lot. The guys that didn't have your hand up, I don't know, don't spend the rest of this talk thinking, do you lock the house? <laughs> oh no. But what you're showing is that you know that the world isn't as it should be because you had to lock it, now you're worried about it. Right? The world isn't as it should be. And someday Jesus will appear on the earth and will cleanse the whole universe with fire. Now, I want to say, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We hate injustice. Something stitched into each one of us that we, we hate it when someone is wronged. We hate it when, when bad things happen. And so does Jesus. It's not the way He created this world. He created us to be in right relationship with Him, to, to serve Him rightly and to love one another properly. But we don't. The world doesn't. And that's why Jesus wishes that this earth were ablaze already. He desires justice. Right. It's good. When He is done, there'll be nothing left but that which is precious, that that will last. There'll be no more sorrow, no more evil, no more injustice in this world, no more death, no more decay. It will be good. It will be as it should be. Jesus says these words, he's longing for the world that he desires, that he's planned since before creation even began. A bright and joyful and perfect and clean world where people treat God as he deserves to be and treat one another rightly and truthfully. The world that is good. But we need to see both sides of the coin. When Jesus says, I come to bring fire on earth, he knows he's speaking about something severe. But he also knows he's speaking about something wonderful and right. Justice. But here's the thing. That fire divides. That judgment separates things that last from things that don't. Not only in the future, but also today. See, Jesus has come to bring not only fire, but division. Division. Contrary to the worldview that's ambivalent to who Jesus is, Jesus has not come for peace. So many people are like, yeah, you know, Jesus is this peaceful guy. He just wants us to love one another. He's, God is the God of love and we shouldn't be strong on judgment. <laughs> that is not the God of history nor the God of the Bible. Jesus has not come for peace, but division. Look at verse 51. Do you think that I came here to give peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. And then he quotes a section of scripture from Micah. He says that they'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And some of us, when we read that, we just go, that just sounds like my family. What do you mean? Well, that's normal, isn't it? And we do. We have fights amongst our family. And we love our mother-in-law and our father-in-law, but often, often they're awkward as well. Um, and there's these kind of uh, tensions that happen, but he's not talking about that. It's not just the normal picture of kind of tussles that happen within family. In Micah, this is a picture of Israel who've forgotten to treat God as He deserves. 
It's a nation that's divided, divided against one another because they've rejected God's rule over them and they think they can run life without Him. They're no longer placing God in the position that He deserves to be and they're no longer treating Him as the king and ruler of them. And so they are divided even amongst their families. This is part of the judgment that comes. But here, in this part in Luke, Jesus uses that part of Israel's history, I think, to point to Himself and to people's reaction to Him. Jesus will cause division even amongst your family. If you have this view of Jesus that He's just a nice moral teacher or a myth or just you know, a good moral guy, He's not going to cause much division around, is He? And why would you divide about that? But if He's the one who is coming to judge the world, to sift through the things that will last and the things that won't, to punish the wrongs we've committed for the times that we've rejected God and said, I think I can live without you. I don't need you to be God in my life. If He's coming to put right the injustice that you and I have caused, then those that are on the, the, the delivery end of that righteousness and that judgment, we're not going to be happy with Him. I haven't spent much time in the prison system, thankfully. I haven't spent any time in jail, but, um, <laughs> but those that I chat to, I hear that from within the prison system, people that are in jail aren't really that excited about the law. They're, kind of, they're frustrated at it, they really like the people that are keeping them there, they, they hate the system because they've been underneath it, they've spent time underneath the strong arm of the law. You don't love those that you are punished by, generally. And here Jesus will cause division. But before we're faced with that judgment, the judgment that each person in this room deserves, me, you, all of us, for turning our backs on God, we see that Jesus actually did something for us. See, before we're faced with the judgment of God and that day when things are put right, when Jesus comes back with the full wrath and fury of God, Jesus faces judgment for us. Before He brings God's judgment, He faces it. For us. Look at verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how it consumes me until it is finished. He, he longs for the day that wrongs are put right, but before that day can come, he has a, a baptism to be baptized with. What is that baptism? Well, in Mark 10, Mark records that James and John go to Jesus and kind of some of his closest friends and followers, they've worked out that Jesus is God's promised king. They're excited about this and they're like, we've got this opportunity. And so the opportunists that they are, they, they come up to him and they say, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can I sit at the right and him at the left? Can, can we be like your, your right-hand guy and left-hand girl, you know, that, that kind of picture? They want to be alongside Jesus and be in there with him. And Jesus looks at them and says these words in verse 38 of Mark 10. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. There's a key to understanding this baptism that Jesus will undergo here. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few chapters later, just before Jesus is going to the cross, the thing that Jesus is most distraught about is this cup that He will drink. Now Luke records it, verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 42. Luke records what Jesus says at this moment. Father, 
If you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now in the Old Testament, the cup is a picture of God's wrath and anger that will be poured out on us for rejecting Him. It's this fire of God. It's talking about the same thing. Therefore, what we see here is that fire and this baptism that Jesus is about to undergo and the cup are the same thing. It's God's judgment. When Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, He's not talking about getting baptized by John the Baptist. That had already happened at this point. He's not talking about the coming of the Spirit. What He's saying, amazingly, is, I'm going to bring fire on this earth. But before I do, the fire must fall on me. I'm going to bring fire on this earth, but before I do, the fire must fall on me. When uh, America was being settled by those first settlers, apparently there were long um, plains that kind of had large kind of plains of grass on them. Uh, it's a story I've read, so it must be true uh, if you read it. And uh, apparently when people were coming across these prairies, occasionally there'd be big fires, grass fires that would come across. And there's no way you can outrun a grass fire. I don't know if you've got a horse or this is so fast with winds across these prairies that they would just take out people. The only way that the kind of settlers could, could get away from these fires was to kind of light another fire in front of them that the wind would take further. And while the fire is coming towards them, they'd light this smaller one here that would then take off that way. And then as the big fire came through, they'd, they'd stand in the part that had already been burnt beforehand. And so as the, the full force of the fire came across them, it wouldn't touch them because they were standing in a place that had already been burnt. There was no more left to consume. What Jesus is saying here is the fire of God is coming when things will be put right. And all of us, or all of them, <laughs> deserve that fire to come. But before that day happens, I will be burnt for you. I will drink the cup that no one else can bear. I will face the full force of God in your place. He will be burnt for us. That's why we must remain in Jesus. That's why Jesus is the only one we can come to. Our allegiance must always be to Him, totally, unequivocally, and ultimately we must be in Jesus because if we stand and face that fire on our own, we have no chance at all because we've all turned our back on God. None of us have treated Him as He deserved to be. Either you're standing in the spot that has been burnt for you called Jesus, trusting that His death in our place was sufficient and that He's dealt with God's anger towards us and that in Him I'm safe from God's judgment, or we're standing on our own two feet, looking down the, the face of a fire coming towards us of God's judgment. The question for us is, who will we let rule our life? Where will we stand? Will we rule our lives ourselves? Or will we trust in Jesus? Will we commit to listening to, as number one priority, our family or our friends or, or our own view on what is most important in life? Or will we take seriously serving Jesus with everything? Jesus causes this division in His judgment, but also in our response to Him. Who is first in your life? Who do you put as number one in all the decisions that you make? 
did a bit of research this week on the way that we are named um, in, in Western culture. Do you know that um, your first name is also called your Christian name? Who, who knew that? Yeah, yeah right, right. Why is it called your Christian name? Yeah, that's what I thought. I'm like, why, why do we call it our Christian name? So I did a bit of research, and it, and it seems that um, kind of throughout Western heritage, when um, Western cultures had a child baptized, uh, they would baptize them with their Christian name. The thing that they'd say, this is who they are in Christ. Now, I think it was more cultural. Uh, it was in a society that was generally um, uh, Christian in, in, in the broader sense of that term. And so they would get their children baptized as their Christian name. And their, their first name was who they were in Christ. That was the kind of idea of it. And they were to be called by their name, their identity of who they were when they were baptized into Jesus. Uh, and then their surname was to follow. And there's something kind of helpful about that, to remember who I am firstly is who I am in Christ. Now, other cultures that I'm sure many of you know far better than me, have a, 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 a um, preeminence to the surname, where the main thing in your family is your surname, and that, that's the kind of thing that defines who you are, and your, your first name kind of follows. And it's interesting that within those cultures, it's almost like family is number one, I must always serve my family first, but Jesus is saying here, I must be first. There's something great about this idea of calling one another by our Christian name, who we are in Christ, and letting our allegiance be to who we actually are in Jesus, sinners who have been forgiven, who are standing in that spot that only Jesus can save us from. Now, I want to be careful here and not just say, look, my Western heritage is better than everyone else's, and that's, that's, of course, that's right, because I think my Western heritage is just as bad, because I don't think we actually call one another by our first name first. See, I've got this thing, I'm pretty hopeless with names. I chat to someone in a conversation, but you know what I can remember really well? What they do. You're in a conversation, oh, hey, what's your name? And then you say, oh, what do, what do you do? I'm a student, what are you studying? Or I'm, I'm a doctor, or I'm a lawyer, or I'm a teacher, or I'm, I'm a builder. I think Western kind of culture, we identify ourselves not by our first name, but by our position, rather than who we are in Christ. What is your name? Jesus says He has come to bring judgment, to divide. We need to expect division. <laughs> the peace that He does bring, the New Testament talks about, the, the, the Gospels talk about when we celebrate Jesus' birth, is real peace, but it's peace with God. Not necessarily peace within our families and the world that we live in. If everything is rosy and the world loves us, either Jesus has come back or we're not living a truly Christian life. It's weighty news that He brings, that judgment is coming. But He brings with it a great joy that in Him, salvation from that judgment is possible. That's why He challenges the crowd at this moment to interpret the time. To interpret the time that He's in. Look at verse 54 and watch carefully the words that He uses. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west... Right away, you say, a storm is coming, and it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say, it's going to be a scorcher, and it is. You're like, what's Jesus doing? He's giving meteorology classes, is that the word? Yeah, that one. He's being the news guy, and pointing to the thing, and going, you guys can do this. What's he saying? Why is he telling them this stuff, saying you can recognize the world around us? Well, listen to his nice, soft word that he says next. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, 
but you don't know how to interpret this time. Now, lots of people today are into interpreting the times. If you're around a Christian church for a while, you hear people looking for when might we know the day that Jesus comes back? How might we discern the times to see when He's coming? I want to note here, Jesus doesn't push you to interpret just the general time. Do you see those last few words? Why don't you know how to interpret this time? See, what is unique at this moment is God the Son has come. And He is speaking to them about the judgment that He'll bring and the salvation that He offers. And He is saying to this people, these crowds who are hearing Him, you can pick what the weather will do by looking around, you can work all this stuff out, but you're missing the one who made it. You are missing the identity of Jesus. He then gives this example of a dispute between a man and an accuser. It's been some dispute that's gone on. We aren't told the details, but there's someone and there's someone who's accusing him and they've got some dispute that they're going on with. And Jesus says to them, before you trot off and go and speak to the the ruler who will then take you to the judge and then will then bring down the punishment, sort it out now. Sort it out between you and the accuser before it gets to this point of being a thing in the court and the full weight of the law comes down. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because Jesus is the accuser. And He's also the ruler. And He's also the judge. And now, this time, this moment, is the moment to reconcile with the God that you've wronged. Now is the time to reconcile with the God that we need to face the judgment of. Now is the time to sort it out because the one is here at that moment, about to walk to His death on a cross for us. He's saying, don't wait until that final fire comes and then try and sort it out. Because that will show every single impurity in our lives and it will burn us up. And we'll need to pay every last cent of eternity of separation from God's goodness. He's saying, sort it out now, when there is an offer on the table to be reconciled with God through this baptism that Jesus is about to undergo. Coming to Jesus remaining in Jesus. It's the decision to let every other area of our life burn because what we have in Him is so precious. What we have in Him is so necessary to trust Him because He is so worthy of our worship that He trumps all else. That's why He causes division, because we're serving Him as King. What does that mean practically for us? It means Jesus must be first in our lives if we want to escape the fire that is to come. We must find ourselves standing in Him. He is not some optional extra. Sometimes I, sometimes I chat to people and they're talking with families about who Jesus is and the families kind of see that this Christianity is a nice thing for my kids to be involved in. Or maybe you think it's something that I want to add on to my life to give me more fulfillment. A life that's fuller, a life that's got some religion mixed in with the other things that I love in this smorgasbord of options that I have, that has got the smell of sulfur about it. Jesus isn't an optional extra. You're either standing in the spot that has been burnt for you or we are facing the flames for what we have done. And that doesn't mean that we totally ignore other parts of our life. We don't ignore our families or our friends or our jobs or our country. Not at all. But we never live for them. We never live for our family and put them first and say, my family name must come first. No. 
My, my, my friendships, my relationships with others are more important to me than, than serving Jesus with my all. No. My country, being a Kiwi or an Australian or whatever you call yourself, is so important to my cultural heritage that I'm going to put those things above who Jesus is. No, He is the King over all. Over every culture, nation, tribe, language and tongue. We can be part of those cultures and those families and those jobs, but we must never live for them. Our hope, our identity, our security, our joy, our comfort is fulfilled far more in Jesus than all those other areas combined, isn't it? Love of everything and everyone else needs to come through the lens of what Jesus says. If He is the King, if He sustains you and me, we need to see His priorities. We care for our families, yes, but only because I love Jesus first. As we work in our workplaces to see, the, to see good happen and to serve our bosses, yes, but because I have a bigger boss. As I think about what I am as, as an Australian or as a Kiwi, or I think through my residency here, but yes, only as a temporary resident of what is to come, that is eternal life with my God because of what He has done if I trust in Jesus. Fear of God's judgment, it's a real thing. But it's not why we run to Jesus, not primarily. We run to Jesus, we, we worship Him, we put Him above everything else, not out of fear, but because of His love. Because of His love. See, ultimately, that's what the judgment of God points us to. The bigger our picture of God's judgment, the harsher that we see it as, as it really is, then the bigger the picture we have of His love for us as the one who faced it for us, who took the full brunt of God's anger for us. So, God, get this. Come forward with me to the moment Jesus was about to face God's judgment for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at it a little bit earlier, but I want you to look as Jesus is contemplating what He's about to undergo for you and for me, look at what happens. Verse 44 of Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 44. Then an angel from heaven appeared to Him, strengthening Him. Being in anguish, He prayed more fervently, and His sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. What is going on for Him at this moment? If even the prospect of this baptism that he's about to undergo was enough to get the eternal Son of God scared out of his mind, to the point where he, he sweated blood, which is apparently a, a sign of severe shock, if the expectation of what he was about to experience, that he knew he would experience, that he'd planned to experience since before time began, as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had this plan to enact that they, were, they wouldn't go through, but if him, as he's about to think through that, would fall to his knees and plead to his father, Father, if there is any other way that you could take this cup from me, let it be. Then imagine what the actual experience of God's wrath being poured out on him was like. But he didn't hold back. He is not some vengeful God that just wants to hate people. But he's a God who is just and will suffer that penalty for you and for me. Not my will, he said, but yours. 
the one who flung stars into space, willingly surrendered his life and suffered the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. This one who at that very moment was sustaining creation, the one who deserves to be worshipped and adored, the one who commands the voices of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels that at any moment could have called them down, that one says, I will drink the cup. I will do it. I will be baptized with fire for you. And then with three words, it is done. It is finished. And the wrath of God was poured out on the sun so that we could stand in the spot that was burnt for us and not have to face the judgment of our God. I love my family, but I wouldn't go to hell for them. I love working and life and friends, but I wouldn't suffer the punishment of God. But Jesus did it for me and for you. That's love. That's the love we've been searching for. It's the love that ultimately you and I need. We search for satisfaction and approval and comfort in so many places when it's been offered to us in Christ at the cross. God's judgment is dealt with. The love that absorbed the fire of God for you. The love that endured what none of us could. He has offered to you and me if we come running to Him if we would but trust Him, stand in the spot that He has burnt for us. Why does Luke record these seemingly harsh words of Jesus? So we might grasp who He really is, to see some of this incomprehensible love that God has for us in Christ, and we might run to Him, place Him in the position that He must be in, the sovereign and complete ruler of all of our lives. Nothing else will satisfy not family, not friends, not career, not becoming world-famous, international fame. But when you see who Jesus is and what He's done, you recognize the radical and wholehearted, single-minded allegiance that He deserves. He is the King, and there is none like Him. See, you can't be lukewarm with Jesus. You can't just celebrate a man who was a good teacher or, or a moral leader. He is the man who brings division. He is the one who secures your judgment forever. And if you've seen him correctly, you will either hate him as the enforcer of what we deserve, or you will run to him and love him. Be captured by the love that He's shown us. Stand trusting Him as the King and Saviour of your world and ruler of your life. The one who faced the fire of God in your place and you will say, I will serve Him above all other, no matter what that costs, for He's borne the greatest cost for me. What is Jesus saying to us? You cannot be lukewarm when Jesus... He demands our all, our lives. So why don't we pray that God would help us to put Him as number one. Let's pray.
Father, tonight it's scary to think of the judgment that we deserve. That on our own two feet that we rightly do deserve to stand before you and have no life. Be separated from your goodness forever. We are so thankful that you've shown your love so clearly to us in the person of your Son. We thank you that you are a just God. That you do not forget the wrongs that have been committed. We thank you that we can trust you in that. We also thank you that you are the God who has, in the person of your Son, absorbed that justice for us, so we might stand forgiven. Lord, we long for the day that things are put right, that the evil within each of us is dealt with fully and finally and completely, like the promise of Christ gives us that hope for. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live wholeheartedly and single-mindedly for you. Lord, for some of us tonight, we don't We haven't yet trusted you. Lord, we pray that you would be number one in our lives. Please forgive us for the times that we haven't treated you that way, where we've served our family or our career or our position or our comfort more than the hope we have in Jesus, more than your son. And we pray that this night you would help us to put Jesus first. Help us to remain in Him and to see the joy that comes from serving Jesus with our everything. Lord God, may we not be half-hearted and lukewarm. May we serve You with our all, no matter what the cost. We pray this for Jesus' fame and for Your glory. Amen.